the Jodcast. Keep your eyes on the sky, there might be fireworks. With Ian Morrison, Haratina Mogasanu, Samuel Leske, Fiona Porter, Cami Bogue, and Michael Wright. The Jodcast, October 2020 edition. Hello, and welcome to the Jodcast. I'm Fiona Porter, and joining me in the studio is Cami. Hello. And Cami, this is your first time on the Jodcast, and you are one of our new postgrads in a very unusual start of the semester. <laughs> yes, true, true. <laughs> well, I'm glad you decided to get involved all the same. Uh, could you give our listeners just a little background about what it is you're working on? Yeah, sure. Um, so my interest primarily uh, lies in the ISM, or the interstellar medium, uh, looking at how that affects various different things from star formation to galaxy evolution um, and running a bunch of simulations on supercomputers um, rather than actually doing any observations myself. <laughs> People would be very surprised, I think, about how little observation tends to happen in this department. <laughs> yeah, there's there are, a lot there are... do without telescopes, funnily enough, <laughs> as an astronomer. Uh, so, in the show this time, Fiona Porter interviews Sofia Wallström and Taisa Danilovich about asymptotic giant branch stars. And Ian Morrison, Haratina Mogasanu and Samuel Leske take a look at what's happening in the October night sky. But first, before all of that, here's Michael Wright with this month's news. In the news this month, water under the surface of Mars and measurements of radiation on the moon. But first, it's worth noting two major stories which will be covered in more detail in the odds and ends. The first is the announcements being made for the 2020 Nobel Prize in Physics, with both discoveries having some relation to astronomy. I'll quote the Nobel Prize summary from their website for what they're about. The awards were to Roger Penrose, which was for the discovery that black hole formation is a robust prediction of the general theory of relativity. The other half was awarded jointly to Reinhard Genzel and Andrea Guess, and this was for the discovery of a supermassive compact object at the centre of our galaxy. Another thing, which will be covered in more detail next month, is a story about phosphines found on Venus. But in very brief, a paper has been published finding evidence of large quantities of phosphine in the atmosphere of Venus. Phosphine has for a long time been considered a possible chemical to look for if we were searching for life on other planets. The levels of phosphine on Venus are not something the authors are able to explain by currently known processes that don't involve life. However, the most vital thing to point out is a quote from the paper on the discovery, which very clearly states, even if confirmed, we emphasise that the detection of pH 3 is not robust evidence for life, only for anomalous and unexplained chemistry. Well done, then. So now for the news proper. One interesting piece of news this month is a new paper on the idea of saltwater lakes under the surface of Mars. You see, in 2018, the paper Radar Evidence of Subglacial Liquid Water on Mars was published, which used data taken between 2012 and 2015 using an instrument on the Mars Express spacecraft. And what it suggested was that there was a subsurface saltwater lake hidden under the ice at Mars' South Pole. However, the finding was only made from 29 observations, and there was a good deal of scepticism about the result, for good reason. 
published this month is a follow-up. It's using the same instrument, what's called the Mars Advanced Radar, for subsurface and ionosphere sounding, Mars OS. But now, because of the time gap, they've had a much larger data set, around 134 observations. In the original paper, the nature of the body of water cannot be defined in detail. However, now with far more measurements, the paper is able to constrain the spatial distribution of what they refer to as bright areas. You see, the method used is radio echo sounding. You fire radio waves at a surface and measure the reflected signal. These waves travel through ice quite well, and the material underneath determines their reflection, the way they're reflected, allowing areas of what we think is liquid water to be identified. That's what the paper means by bright areas, areas that they claim indicate liquid water. The reflected signal will be different if they're reflected back from say. The new results identify the previous body of water and lead to the discovery of three other bodies around the original one. This is still not conclusive evidence, though recall it's the same instrument used to perform the detection. So, without other methods we might not be entirely sure that the bright spots recorded are actually lit water. However, the fact these spots exist is still interesting, even if we end up demonstrating, say, a slightly different explanation for their existence. We still know that these spots exist, and we still need to explain why they happen, and what causes them. Another story from the last month is the publishing of the paper First Measurements of the Radiation Dose on the Lunar Surface. The argument for making these sorts of measurements is simple. If we're going to put humans on the moon for long periods of time, we need to consider the effects of radiation. And we would expect the radiation dose received by the lunar surface to be far greater than at the Earth's surface, because of the effect of our atmosphere as a radiation shield, with the moon receiving not far off the expected dose in space. During the Apollo missions, astronauts had dosimeters on them. However, what's known as time-average radiation data wasn't acquired. This paper measures that with a specialised dosimetry experiment on board the Chang'e 4 lander. In the part of the moon they were measuring, they found an average total absorbed dose rate in silicon, which is the material the dosimeter is made of. They found that as 13.2 plus or minus 1 microgray per hour. Plus they measured what they refer to as the neutral radiation. The radiation field meets the moon and interacts with the lunar soil. This results in a measurement of what they refer to as a neutral particle dose rate of 3.1 plus or minus half microgray per hour. After processing this data, the research results in a dose equivalent rate that they calculate of 57.1 plus or minus 10.6 microsieverts per hour from charged particles. The equivalent dose is used to account for the fact that different forms of radiation have different health effects and attempt to represent the probable health effects of radiation received. As a comparison, this is around a couple of hundred times greater than what would be expected in most places on Earth. The paper itself makes a comparison to the measurement on the International Space Station. The ISS measures around 731 microsieverts per day to their 1,369 microsieverts per day, once you multiply it out. As you can imagine, this does mean interesting problems for long-term occupation on the moon. The paper does point out, however, to quote them, settlements on the moon will provide additional shielding because they will be buried under layers of lunar regolith. While this would decrease the dose rate from charged particles, the absolute contribution from neutrons is expected to increase for shielding constructed from in-situ resources. 
So what they were going back there in that quote was mentioning the earlier detail about neutral particle dosage from the radiation field interacting with the lunar soil. So overall, this is a very interesting problem to overcome. We have a much higher radiation dose rate compared to on Earth. And of course, high levels of radiation give you health problems. You're increasingly likely to get cancer, things like that. So this is quite a problem if we're going to put long-term habitation on the moon. And as they mentioned about expecting an increase in the neutral particle dosage, this is then simply not something that we can just solve from sheltering under the lunar surface completely. So overall, an interesting problem to overcome, and it's good that these measurements have been made. That's all I have in the news this month. Back to the studio. Thanks for that, Mike. Now Fiona interviews Sophia Volstrom and Thaisa Danilovic about asymptotic giant branch stars. Hello, this is Fiona Porter, and we're joined in the studio today by Sophia Wallström from the Institute of Astronomy, KU Leuven in Belgium. Yes, hello. <laughs> nice to have you here. You. So at the moment you are visiting the University of Manchester for ALMA. Yes. Care to tell us a little bit about what you're up to? Uh, so we're working on um, some ALMA data of evolved stars. Uh, asymptotic giant branch stars, which are an evolved state of sun-like stars and more massive stars. So with ALMA we can resolve the matter that's ejected by these stars and see what they're up to. So for our listeners who are not too up to date on their stellar evolution, asymptotic giant branch is what you'll see if a star is between about I believe it's about 0.6 and 10 solar masses, is that right? Yeah, 0.8 and 8 are the, the numbers we normally use, but around there. We're not <laughs> sure what happens at the boundaries. Mm -hmm. But if you get too far past 10, then you're in supernova territory. Yes. But we're not looking at those today. <laughs> no. So what's ALMA looking at in particular for this project? So with ALMA, we can look at the gas that's ejected by these stars, which we can study through the molecules that's in the gas, which uh, emit radiation at certain frequencies that we can see in the, the radio and submillimeter, which is where ALMA is looking. Mm. So we're studying different molecules and how they move in the gas. So these are going to be a property of the giant stars being, as far as stars go, not all that hot. Yes. Because obviously if your star is a bit too hot, then everything just gets ionized and there's not really much room to have the more complicated molecules. Yes, that's true. So what sort of molecules are you looking at using this? Um, well, the, the ones that we commonly see around ATB stars are things like carbon monoxide, which is carbon and oxygen, there's lots of that. Uh, other oxides like silicon oxide and sulfur oxide. Um, we are also interested in metal molecules, so things like iron oxide and aluminium oxide, which are a bit more rare. So we're not talking astronomy metals, where it's everything other than hydrogen and helium, we're talking actual, what what everyone would recognise as metals. <laughs> yes. So iron, aluminium, magnesium, titanium, those sorts of, of metals in simple, normally diatomic molecules, so just the metal and oxygen most commonly. Uh, so what can we learn from these these molecules? So what, the reason we want to study these molecules um, is because they are likely to be components of the dust that also forms around these stars. So 
dust in the galaxy tends to be um, small particles, either soot-like if they have a lot of carbon or sort of sand-like if they don't. So these are not carbon-rich stars and therefore we get silicate dust or sand-like dust. Uh, and we're pretty sure that various metals that are produced by the star uh, help form this dust, but we don't know exactly how it happens. So by studying these stars with ALMA, we can look very close to the star at the region where we think the dust forms. Right. So why is ALMA in particular important for this? Is it, uh, is it a resolution thing? It's uh, both angular resolution and sensitivity. So because ALMA is a combination of so many telescopes, we can look at very small details very close to the star and also have the, the sensitivity, the collecting area, to actually uh, see these faint features. So it's a combination of actually being able to see close enough to be able to isolate it to particular regions while still actually being able to collect enough of the relevant wavelengths that you can actually tell something's there, because if you can't, then even if something is there, it's going to just be invisible to you. Yes. <laughs> On a more personal level, can I ask a bit about your own research? Yeah. So I haven't been working on AGB stars for all that long. I was studying other types of stars earlier uh, in my PhD. The most similar topic that I've covered was more massive stars. Hmm. So I've looked at a yellow hypergiant star, which is a different form of evolved star. And a very cool sounding one, if I may say. (laughs) So there were already supergiants, which were so named because they were more luminous than the giant stars that had already been found. And then when we find even more luminous stars, we have to keep coming up with more hyperbolic names for them. So uh, yellow hypergiant. Coming to you soon will be some sort of, you know, ultra giant. Something very dramatic like that. (laughs) So the yellow hypergiant star that I was studying, um, it has thrown off a lot more mass than an AGB star is able to to eject. But because, as you said, it's a much hotter star than AGB stars, it doesn't have so many complicated molecules in it. So we mostly look at it in the most abundant molecule that we can easily detect, which is carbon monoxide. If I understand, uh, that's because that one's quite a strong bond between the carbon and the oxygen. Yes. Whereas uh, some of the other molecules, the bonds are comparatively weaker and more easily destroyed or disrupted. Yeah. So um, the biggest reason carbon monoxide is the one we look at is because it is the most abundant. Um, The overall most abundant molecule is uh, hydrogen, so two hydrogen molecules or two hydrogen atoms joined as a molecule. But we can't detect that in the radio because it just doesn't emit at those frequencies. So the next most common molecule by far is carbon monoxide. And both of those make sense. I mean, hydrogen's the most uh, common type of atom in the universe. And meanwhile, in these stars, because they're quite late in their life, you're going to be seeing quite a bit of carbon and oxygen because they've sort of reached the point where they can fuse those uh, from lower mass elements. Exactly. <laughs> so when it came to this hypergiant, though, you're studying a similar sort of thing involving that it's uh, losing mass. Is this just part of its life cycle? Yes. Um, so most stars, I would say, will 
once they've uh, stopped being sort of normal main sequence stars uh, where they're just burning hydrogen and are quite calm and quiescent like our sun is at the moment. Um, after they start to run out of hydrogen, their cores will contract and therefore they expand their outer layers. So in the terms of um, lower mass stars that become AGB stars, um, they will be quite large and cool and be sort of slowly losing mass. Those more massive stars will expand faster and still be quite hot so they can lose mass a lot more quickly. And they also start off with more mass to, <laughs> to lose. How fast are we, are we talking? Are there any numbers which are going to make sense? <laughs> um, so yellow hypergiants is actually a, an even more extremely short stage of a massive star's evolution. It only lasts a few thousand years. Which in astronomy time is nothing. Yeah, it's a blink of an eye. Um, but in general, the more massive stars will only live maybe 10 million years or 1 million year, um, whereas the lowest mass stars will live longer than the current age of the universe. <laughs> Which is really something. Our sun's sort of relatively middle of the road in terms of its temperature, if I remember rightly. It's yes. it's a G-type. Yeah. For those of you who know your uh, <laughs> your sun classification schemes, where yellow hypergiants is that sort of a thing that a star like the sun could become, or is that for more massive cases? That's for more massive cases. So. Um... The sun will become a red giant when it first starts to evolve um, into its evolved star stage at the end of its life. Whereas more massive stars, say more than about eight solar masses, uh, will become red supergiants. Oh, I see. So mass is going to be the sort of the dominating factor there. Yes. Makes sense. <laughs> so for a different part of your research, uh, you gave a talk earlier today about some work you've been doing with uh, NESS, which is the Nearby Evolved Stars Survey. Yep. So with NESS, we're looking at the the most common types of evolved stars, which is asymptotic giant branch stars. It's AGB stars again. Um, and the reason we want to look at them is because they are so common and they provide a lot of the gas and dust in our galaxy. Um, but they haven't been studied in a systematic way because it's been difficult to observe the, the amount of uh, the number of stars that you would need to get a statistical sample. I see. Is there something about them that makes them difficult to detect then? Not really, but we haven't had good enough uh, telescopes and receivers to be able to look at large number of sources in a reasonable amount of time. So people have mostly looked at single sources or a smaller sample of sources. Oh, I see. That makes sense. What sort of waveband are they brightest in? Obviously they're visible in the radio for when you're looking for molecules, uh, but the stars themselves, is that the best place to look? The stars themselves tend to be brightest in the infrared because they're, they're quite large and cool stars. But when you look in the infrared, um, you're generally just looking at continuum or photometry. So you're only getting a single measurement of the, the brightness of the star at a certain waveband. Oh, I see. Rather than actually getting a look at any of the structure involved. Yes. 
And of course, with infrared, you've also got the issues of things like uh, like extinction, yes. because obviously you're going to be in a dusty environment, which means a lot of that light just isn't going to make it to us. Yeah. So how many of these stars is Ness looking at then? We have a sample of about 500 stars within two kiloparsecs of the, the sun. How does that compare to any of the other studies? Um, most studies haven't tried to do such a systematic look. People have mostly just gone for the brightest sources that are the easiest to detect or sources that are special in some way. Whereas yours is more sort of like a, a general view of it all. Yeah, we want to look at all the AGB stars within a certain volume of the galaxy. What sort of trends are you looking for? So we're assuming that there will be trends with mass loss rate, because that's a, a big obvious one, and also things like chemical type, and then other stellar parameters that we're looking at are the, the luminosity of the star, the temperature of the star, and the surface gravity, though we don't have measurements of that for all, all the sources. I'm not actually familiar with surface gravity, uh, would you mind explaining what that is? I don't actually know how people measure it, but it's basically a measure of how tightly bound the outer layers of the star are. Oh. So if your star gets too big, then the outer layers essentially don't feel any gravity from the star because they're just too far out, so the, the random movement of the, the material is, is larger than the surface, the, the gravity that the star exerts. I see. I suppose that's going to be relevant in a case where you're losing mass, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> so we, we think that's part of why AGB stars are losing mass, because they have um, pulsations coming from the inner core and traveling out into the outer layers of the star, lifting the layers further away from the core until they become, well, able to escape the surface <laughs> gravity, essentially. At which point they go out and join the interstellar medium then, I suppose. Yeah, slowly but surely. So the data that you're using uh, to do these these studies, uh, is that complete? Is Ness all finished collecting data? No, not yet. Um, so we have a large observing program with the JCMT telescope, the James Clerk Maxwell telescope on Mauna Kea in Hawaii, um, which is doing both molecular and continuum observations in the submillimeter, and that's about 60% done at the moment. So the, the observing program will run over about another two years. Are you expecting to find sort of a similar proportion of sources in the future? So if you've currently got about 500, are we expecting maybe another whatever 40% of 500 is more? No, uh, 500 is the the total number of sources that we're targeting. So they're oh, I see. from uh, a different catalogue. Right, so that's going to be 500 total in the end, but currently you don't have full measurements of all of them. Yes. Right, that makes sense. How are the results looking so far? Are they about what you expected? Well, what I've looked at so far is mostly the, the carbon monoxide lines, so the, the data that we have on the gas. Um, and I've been comparing it to previously observed samples and also to um, models that people have done of AGB stars of what they expect 
to see. And so far we're not quite matching uh, the models. And hmm. I'm not sure why. But we haven't done a, a proper um, calculation of various parameters from the data. We've just done a sort of first step rough and ready calculation. Uh. There's still quite large error bars <laughs> in what we're doing. So it's a little bit too back of the envelope to conclusively say there's something a bit weird going on here. Yeah, we definitely can't conclusively say much. <laughs> uh, well, it's still early days though. Yeah. But of course, we all know that what astronomy is really about is pretty pictures. Yeah, so, Of course. <laughs> So I understand that you do actually have uh, some images of essentially what the structure looks like around these stars. Yes, so especially with the, the JCMT, it's built to be a, a survey telescope or a mapping telescope that's able to, to map an area in a very short amount of time. Um, so we're getting some very nice pictures of the, the cold dust around some of these stars. Um, and this is something that hasn't been very extensively studied before because we haven't always had these instruments available uh, at the sort of sensitivities they can reach now. What's the sort of thing you see with this? Uh, is dust sort of, I guess, clustered around the stars like a ring? or? Yeah, we don't really have the angular resolution to, to get a lot of small-scale features. So we mostly see rings of dust around the stars. We see some slight asymmetries in some of them, which is interesting and sort of expected. A lot of AGB stars are expected to be um, in binary systems, so they have a companion which would shape the, the ejecta that they're throwing off, the, the matter that they're ejecting. Well, that makes sense, I suppose. Uh, so would that be uh, another star, or would a big enough planet work? Both would work. So what you're seeing then, I guess, is effectively uh, the companion sort of passing through some of all, all this dust and just disrupting it a bit. Yeah, um, there's different mechanisms for how a companion might affect the uh, the outflow of the, the material, depending on how close it is and how massive it is. But this isn't usually going to be a situation where you're going to be forming new planets? No. The densities aren't really high enough for the dust to club together and form new planets. It's mostly existing stars or planets that are just shaping what we see. Hmm. At least gives you something nice to look at. Yes. Well, it's been very good to have you here, Sophia. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for speaking with us, and bye for now. Thanks for that. Me. We are risking the Fiona Show 2.0. <laughs> <laughs> now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other bits that we can't fit in anywhere else. The odds and ends. So, uh, since you're a newcomer to the show, uh, I'll kick us off. Okay. So my odd and end this time around is about this year's Nobel Prize for Physics. Oh, As yes, heard of much course. About it, <laughs> I heard I heard some things about it. I'm excited to hear more though from from your perspective. Sure. Well, this year the Nobel Prize has been split three ways. So half goes to Roger Penrose, and that's 
or the discovery that black hole formation is a robust prediction of the general theory of relativity. And the other half is being shared between Reinhard Genzel and Andrea Ghez uh, for the discovery of a supermassive compact object at the centre of our galaxy. So that's the supermassive black hole. And this, uh, this means we are now at a grand total of four female winners of the Nobel Prize for Physics. Woohoo! <laughs> I mean, to be fair, the last one was only last year, so hopefully that's the sort of a trend we'll see keeping on going. Yeah, let's hope it continues. Personally, I didn't know much about any of these people ahead of time, so I looked up some little bits and pieces about them. So you might have spotted that this year's prize is pretty black hole themed. So Roger Penrose is actually a mathematical physicist, so he specialises in all the stuff that I personally find far too scary to contemplate looking into. <laughs> and uh, he's the one who figured out that GR predictions mathematically meant that that sufficiently massive stars would have to collapse to form singularities and figured that out in 1965. Oh, wow. Long yeah, time ago. A long time coming. <laughs> Although he has worked with someone whose name I'm pretty sure you will have heard of because it's Stephen Hawking. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so uh, this was, I believe, at the time that Hawking was a, a PhD student or an early postdoc, and they, were, they worked together to study the Big Bang uh, again, trying to get uh, what the mathematical predictions about GR said to make physical sense. And final little thing for him, if you want to have something a little bit more visual than all this mathematical stuff, uh, you can have a look up of Penrose tilings, which are just interesting ways of fitting together regular shapes into just a, a nice tile pattern. Yeah, I think I've heard of that, actually. I think he's a reasonably big name in mathematics. Yeah. Uh, maybe slightly less so in physics, except where stuff like this that overlaps. When it comes to the other half of the prize then, uh, Reinhard Genzel is the current co-director at the Max Planck Institute for Extraterrestrial Physics, uh, which I think means he's maybe responsible for trying to call aliens. It probably That's doesn't. Cool. I'm pretty sure that actually just means physics outside the Earth. Very cool uh, title. So, mm -hmm. so limited actual involvement with ET. <laughs> uh, his area of focus is the sort of infrared sub-millimeter range and the way that he used this to find the black hole at the galactic center was just tracking stars traveling around it and figuring out what had to be there based on their orbits you know what its mass had to be and so on and I felt that this is pretty wild that they only found this this proof in 1996 oh wow I thought that the supermassive black hole was one of those things which people had known about for, you know, decades and decades and decades. But Yeah, I thought the same thing, actually. I didn't realise it was that recent. I mean, I knew that the sort of modern view of the universe probably only kicked in sort of around the 20s when people were starting to get into understanding that actually, you know, there are objects which aren't inside our galaxy. But I'd honestly thought that something like the supermassive black hole, the one that close to us, would have been in... I don't know, maybe the 70s or 80s, but no, 1996. Wow. <laughs> and he's quite recently done a bit of work building on this by tracking one of the stars orbiting it because it's moving at relativistic speeds, about 2.5% of light speed, which for something, you know, as big as a star. Yeah, that's crazy. Mm -hmm. So has used that to confirm some more general stuff, this time predictions of how redshift uh, behaves at a relativistic velocity. So it all just sounds very, very fancy. Like they're dealing with some pretty, pretty mathematically intense 
stuff or proofs of pretty mathematically intense stuff so far. Mm. And then we finally get to Andrea Gez, uh, who is an astrophysicist focused on the galactic center uh, and is currently a professor at the uh, University of California, UCLA. And she actually improved on Genzel's original observations of the galactic center uh, using higher resolution imaging with, I believe, the Keck telescope. And that was in 1998. Mm. So a couple of years later, uh, there was a significant improvement in what we would be able to see of it. And one of the things that she did was uh, found what the mass of this central black hole had to be. And hopefully in the future, there'll be even more sort of fun general relativistic tests uh, by just keeping up long-term observations of those stars orbiting Sagittarius A stars, the supermassive black hole. Mm. And how massive is it? Do we know? Sagittarius A star is approximately four times 10 to the six of the mass of the sun. Oh my God. So, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so four million suns, I believe that works out as. Mental. This, this area of physics is just crazy. Absolutely. And especially when you consider things like the difference between the mass of the sun and the mass of the earth. So the earth weighs in at about six times 10 to 24 kilos. And the sun is about two times 10 to the 30. So the sun is about a million times more massive than the earth. And this supermassive black hole is about a million times more massive than the sun. So depending on how you count your billions, that is either one billion or a thousand billion times more massive. Depending Crazy. on if you like to do British or American billions. We obviously prefer British billions here at the Jobcast. Naturally. Class. Naturally. <laughs> We're we're sort of snobby like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that is my odd and end this time round, which, yeah, I thought it was pretty cool just having a look into stuff like this, really. I'm mm. always astounded by either how recent or how long ago things have been discovered. I find it's rarely that I'll find something out and go, huh, you know, that seems exactly right. Yeah, yeah, true. <laughs> I like I said earlier, I feel that this is something which surely we should have known about in the 80s at least, but no, they discovered this, you know, within my lifetime. Yeah, that is kind of crazy because we knew about the galaxy, I assume, and how would all of the various bits and bobs have sort of stuck in the same area if there wasn't something super huge at the, at the centre? I don't know, but... Maybe they just yeah. assumed there was like a massive overdensity of stars or something in that general neighbourhood. Mm. Or maybe it was a dark already, matter thing, who knows? Mm, they already had to consider stuff like dark matter, so... Yeah. Could be anything, really. Interesting. But yeah, so that is what this year's Nobel Prize for Physics is for, and congratulations to the winners. Yeah, if they're listening, congrats. <laughs> <laughs> yes, if you're listening... One, I'm a little bit surprised you're listening to the Jodcast in between all that very impressive research, but, mm. you know, very well done. Very well done, <laughs> nonetheless. My odd and end uh, is about supernovae, which is another crazy part of physics, um, specifically that we now have extremely convincing proof uh, that a supernova occurred in Earth's vicinity just 2.5 million years ago, which uh, is quite recent, actually. Um, mm. considering that the Earth is, you know, 4.5 billion years old. Um, okay. To put that in context, the asteroid that wiped out the dinosaurs was 65 million years ago, 
Uh, and this supernova occurred just 2.5 million years ago. So quite a recent, quite a recent thing. I mean, um, realistically, we're probably talking within the existence of sort of early humans, aren't we? Yeah, I was, I was just about to say, uh, 2.5 million years ago is also around the time of the rise of Homo habilis, which is an early ancestor of modern humans, um, also called the handyman um, or the handy human who used lots <laughs> of tools. Um, but we'll come back to them in a bit. To give just a brief introduction to supernova for those less acquainted with them, um, they're super extreme events in the universe where a star will violently explode at the end of its life. Um, sometimes I do think it's easy to forget how just crazily powerful these events are. A single supernova can be as bright as the total brightness of its host galaxy. This is kind of an event that has as much energy output as our sun will generate over the entirety of its 10 billion year lifetime. So it's almost hard to comprehend, really. Okay, mm -hmm. thing we have to bear in mind is that supernovas just start out as, you know, somewhat massive, regular stars. Yeah. And this is not, they are just your standard star, which briefly emits more light than the entire galaxy it's in. That's crazy. Crazy. Um, one of the most interesting parts of this story is how uh, Korshenek and his team inferred that this supernova occurred. Apologies to Korshenek if he's listening for probably butchering his name. Um, <laughs> the extreme energies of supernovae mean that they confuse really heavy elements um, and then throw them out into the universe. So supernovae are actually uh, considered the primary source of heavy elements in the universe, from the silicone in your smartphone to the iron in your blood. Um, and speaking of iron, it was a particular isotope of iron, uh, 60Fe, that started this debate uh, years ago. Um, mm -hmm. The concentration of this isotope found around the Earth was not quite enough evidence, however, for the supernova theory to be fully explained, um, as that isotope can also be produced by AGB stars. Mm -hmm. um, but oh, the study, hey. yeah, I know, linked to, link to our, our earlier segment. Um, <laughs> the study by Korshnek and his team, uh, however, basically seems to have put this debate to rest with the discovery of an isotope of manganese, uh, 53MN. Mm -hmm. Um, which is a radionuclide that can only be formed by supernovae. Hey. I know, they're very clever from them. But <laughs> it's, it's just interesting to me that they, use, they were using mass spectroscopy um, to learn about past supernovae, you know, looking down rather than up to learn about the universe. I thought it was quite interesting. It also brings up something quite interesting, uh, because I know one of the things uh, that some people have a bit of a concern about is whether a nearby supernova could potentially damage life on Earth, just on the basis of there being, you know, a bunch of high-speed particles going all over the place. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so this is one of the things that um, actually helped them constrain how far away they think the supernova occurred, um, because if it was within a certain range of Earth, they wouldn't expect us to be around to figure out that it had happened. So... <laughs> it's a good sort of uh, thing to use as an evaluation metric, you know. Yeah. Do we exist? Do we exist? We do. So what can that tell us? <laughs> so even more interestingly, the abundances of these isotopes can give us some constraints on the properties of the supernova. So uh -huh. for one thing, the half-life of the isotopes, the 60Fe in particular, is what allows us to conclude how recent the event was, because if it was any earlier, the atoms would have decayed by now. I was going to say, it's the same sort of method you'd use just to they determine how recently any radioactive uh, material started decaying. So it's the same concept as used in carbon dating, for example. 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly that. And also, the ratio of the manganese isotope to the iron isotope tells us the mass of the star that exploded was probably somewhere between 11 and 25 solar masses. So they have right. been able to figure out quite a few details about this supernova. That is really quite an impressive amount to be able to learn, you know, about something which happened two and a half million years ago in space. Yeah. I just looking at stuff on the ground effectively yeah it is it's really interesting the final note that i'll say on this study is now about the ongoing debate as to what effect this supernova actually had on earth the time frame coincides with the pleistocene epoch which is the period of ice ages on earth and some people theorize that the cosmic rays that would have showered the earth following this explosion could lead to increased cloud formation. So huh. possibly suggesting that this was a factor that could have caused the ice ages to occur. You know, I didn't realize that was a thing that cosmic rays could do. I yeah, knew... I think that is still somewhat debated, but there are mechanisms that, that propose that cosmic rays uh, in, in excess at the very least <laughs> increase cloud formation in the Earth's atmosphere. Yeah, because I do know that uh, the cosmic rays kicked up by a particularly impressive solar storm uh, historically have done some quite uh, concerning things. So one yeah. of the things they've done is, I believe there was a solar storm sometime in the 19th century, uh, which, so uh, cosmic rays are largely made up of electrons. So that is the same thing as the current in wires. So while this solar storm was on, uh, telegraph operators, that dates this, telegraph operators found out that they could sometimes power their equipment, run it, without actually turning the power on. They could turn their machine <laughs> off and it would still run. Oh my God. And that then some more of them uh, caught on fire. <laughs> so oh it's God. not all good. Yeah. Modern systems uh, do have some measures to protect against this, which had to happen after a different solar storm somewhat messed up, I believe, a power plant in Canada. But the, uh, the magnetic field catches the majority of cosmic rays. So this is the sort of thing you would only see during an event like a big solar storm or a supernova. A supernova, indeed, yeah. Um, so who knows what, what impact it, it really had on Earth. Other researchers believe it could be linked to a partial extinction event, uh, the Pliocene marine megafauna extinction, as it is called. So perhaps it could have contributed to that. One of the wackier ideas I came across concerns those early ancestors that we mentioned earlier, Homo habilis. Um, some argue that there could be a link between humanity's conversion to bipedalism and this supernova event. Huh. I know. I'm a little so, curious what their logic is there, I have to say. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'll have to look into that one a bit more because that I mean, did seem like a strange claim. There is the There is the logic in that, you know, cosmic rays are usually high energy radiation uh, so if a particularly high energy cosmic ray hits you and remember again we're talking on the scale of nucleides we're talking uh, we're talking three protons and electrons mostly electrons <laughs> so the odds of getting hit by a single electron pretty slim yeah but if you got hit by a sufficiently high energy electron, that would, I believe, count as a form of sort of ionizing radiation. Yeah, so exactly. Theoretically, things like that can alter DNA. But I don't think it's as simple as one Homo habilis getting struck in the walk on two legs gene or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I'm a I'm little sure bit it's... dubious about that one. Yeah, slightly more complicated than that, perhaps. But Homo habilis were known to have bigger brains than their. Uh, more famous 
um, predecessors. So who knows? Maybe this was uh, the the source of the event that caused those uh, older genes to mutate into something more like what we see from humans today. But uh, we'll have to make sure that we say that that is not a confirmed. <laughs> uh, we are not biologists. We yeah. are not biologists. This is pure speculation. And I don't think that supernovae are the driving force behind evolution. No, as much as I would love to put every science under the umbrella of astrophysics <laughs> by saying that all evolution is actually an astrophysical mechanism, uh, I don't think we quite have enough to say that. No, I, I don't yet. think we're... I don't think we can pull that one off. No, maybe someday, maybe someday. <laughs> and now for some slightly less spectacular, but still rather lovely sights in the sky, here's Ian Morrison with this month's Night Sky. The night sky for October 2020. Fairly high in the west is the region of sky containing the constellations Cygnus the Swan, Lyra the Lyre, and Aquila the Eagle. Their bright stars, Deneb and Cygnus, Vega and Lyra, and Altair in Aquila, form what is called the Summer Triangle. In fact, is still visible well into the autumn. Due south lies the square of Pegasus, not such a bright constellation. The top left-hand star, Alpharats, is actually Alpha Andromeda, and it's a starting point for finding the way to the Andromeda galaxy. On the night sky page, search for night sky Jodrell and drop down to either the University of Manchester or the Centre for Astrophysics. I do give a chart showing you the two ways to find the Andromeda galaxy. And finally, high overhead is the W-shaped constellation of Cassiopeia and down to its left, you'll find Perseus. Rising over in the east and getting higher in the sky as the night moves on is a constellation of Taurus the Bull, with those two wonderful open clusters, the Hyades, and higher up, in fact, the Pleiades. So it's actually quite a nice time to observe the night sky. Now, the planets. Well, Jupiter is still visible, low in the sky, just west of south when darkness falls. It sets at the start of October around 10.30pm BSP. Towards the end of the month, it will still be seen towards the southwest after sunset, but then sets by 08.30 GMT. Its magnitude dims slightly from minus 2.4 to minus 2.2 during the month whilst the angular diameter falls from 40.5 to 37.1 arc seconds. Sadly, even when first seen after sunset, it will only have an elevation of about 14 degrees above the horizon, so the atmosphere will limit our views. Due to its position in the most southerly part of the ecliptic, this has been a very poor apparition for those of us in the northern hemisphere. Saturn follows Jupiter into the sky, some 8 degrees behind at the start of the month, but reducing to 5.2 degrees by month's end. It's best seen in the south just after sunset on the 1st. The magnitude drops slightly during the month from plus 0.5 to plus 0.6, 
whilst its angular size decreases from 17.2 to 16.4 arc seconds. The ring spanning some 35 arc seconds across and at 22 degrees to the line of sight, sharp well. Saturn lies in Sagittarius, near the border of Capricornus. It halted its retrograde motion on the 29th of September, and as the year progresses, becomes closer to Jupiter, until on the 21st of December, they are just 0.1 degrees apart. Sadly again, this low elevation of about 16 degrees when crossing the meridian will limit our views of this most beautiful planet. Mercury passes in front of the Sun on the 25th of the month, that's called inferior conjunction, and I'm afraid will not be visible this month. Now Mars, this is a special month for Mars, and I've actually included it in the highlights, as you will see. Finally, Venus. Venus was at greatest elongation east back in August, but still dominates the pre-dawn sky, rising about three hours before sunrise as October begins, and a little less by month's end. It shines at magnitude minus 4.1 at the start of October, lying half a degree from Regulus and Leo. The magnitude drops to minus 4 by month's end, while the angular size shrinks slightly from 15.5 to 13.2 arc seconds. However, during the same time its phase, and that's the illuminated percentage of the disk, increases from 72% to 81%, which is why the falling magnitude is so small. It still reaches an elevation of about 32 degrees above the horizon at sunrise. Venus entered the constellation of Leo on the 23rd of September and moves into Virgo on the 23rd of this month. Finally, the highlights. Now, this is a wonderful month to view Mars, the best for many years to come. It has its closest approach to Earth on October the 6th when it will lie 39 million miles from Earth. Later, on the 13th, it reaches opposition, so it's highest in the south, around 1 a.m. BST. Wonderfully, at this opposition, Mars is far higher in the sky than at recent oppositions. In Pisces, Mars outshining even Jupiter can be first seen rising around 8 p.m. BST in the southeast as October begins. It crosses the meridian at 2 a.m. BST on the first of the month, and by about 11 p.m. GMT by month's end. Its magnitude begins at minus 2.5, peaks to minus 2.6 around opposition, and then fades to minus 2.2 by the end of the month. The angular size is just over 22 arc seconds for most of the month, dropping slightly to 20 arc seconds by month's end. Reaching an elevation of around 43 degrees when due south, as seen from the UK, amateur telescopes will enable one to see features, such as Sirtis Major, on its surface, when the seeing conditions are good. This is the best time to observe Mars until 2035. During this opposition, Mars's southern hemisphere is tipped towards the Earth, and so the south polar cap should be visible 
but I've actually observed it, it's actually not that obvious. Much of it's frozen carbon dioxide that have vaporized during this Martian summer. Though the North Polar Cap is beyond our view, one should be able to spot the haze of the North Polar Hood lying above the northern limb of the planet. With a day of 24.6 hours long, similar to ours, the surface details remain similar at about the same time each night. And in fact, Mars will take 41 days to make an apparent rotation as seen from Earth at the same time each night. On the night sky page, I give details how to find some of the more interesting objects visible in the sky this month. And I start with Neptune. It's just past opposition and so will be visible for much of the night. It lies in Aquarius below one of the circles in Pisces and shines at magnitude plus 7.8 with a 2.4 arc second disk. So you'll need binoculars or a small telescope to spot it under a dark sky. I hope the charts on the night sky page will help you find it. It's not so difficult as it lies close to a nice grouping of stars. Of course, a well-aligned computerized telescope will take you right there. But unless the seeing is exceptional, I expect that the dark bluish disk will not be that obvious. Again, it's a good time to look in the east towards the constellations of Cassiopeia and Perseus. Perseus contains two interesting objects, the double cluster that lies between it and the constellation Cassiopeia, and Algol, the demon scar. Algol is an eclipsing binary system, and I show a diagram of its eclipse path. Normally the pair has a steady magnitude of about plus 2.2, but every 2.86 days it briefly drops to magnitude 3.4. And again, on the night sky page, I give you a chart to show you two ways to find the Andromeda galaxy M31. Around New Moon, and that's on the 16th of October, and well away from towns and cities, you may be able to spot M33, the third largest galaxy after M31 and our own galaxy in our local group of galaxies. It's a face-on spiral, and its surface brightness is pretty low, so a dark, transparent sky will be needed to spot it, using binoculars either 8 by 40 or preferably 10 by 50. You follow the two stars back from M31 and continue in the same direction, sweeping slowly as you go. It looks like a little piece of tissue paper stuck on the sky, just brighter than the sky background. Tough one to find, but do have a go. So finally, some sort of conjunctions in the sky. On October the 2nd, one hour before sunrise, Venus will only be about half a degree to the upper right of Regulus, that's Alpha Leonis. On October the 10th, before dawn, the third quarter moon will lie down to the right of Pollux in Gemini. On October the 14th, before dawn, Venus and a very thin crescent moon. Should it be clear, Venus will be seen below a very thin waning crescent moon. You may well be able to spot Earthshine, which is the dark side of the moon lit by light reflected from the Earth. 
on October the 22nd after sunset. Jupiter will be seen above a waxing moon one day before first quarter, with Saturn up to its left. On the 29th in the evening, Mars will lie very close to a waxing moon just two days before full. Something to look for on the moon is the Hyginus Rill, and the nights of October the 7th and the 23rd are best because the terminator lies quite close. We know that virtually all craters on the moon were caused by impact, but it's thought that the Hyginus crater that lies at the centre of the Hyginus Rill may well be volcanic in origin. It is an 11 kilometre wide rimless pit, in contrast with impact craters which have raised rims and its close association with the rill of the same name associates it with internal lunar events. It's thought that an explosive release of dust and gas created a vacant space below, so the overlying surface collapsed, so forming the crater. Well, quite a lot to see this month, and of course, with the dark skies coming earlier in the evening, you've got more time to have a look, so good hunting. Thanks for that, Ian. And for our Southern Hemisphere listeners, here's Haritina Mogusanu and Samuel Leske with the night sky where you are. Kia ora from New Zealand. I am Haritina Mogusanu, Senior Science Communicator at Space Place at Cairo Observatory, reporting on October's night sky from the beautiful skies of the Southern Hemisphere. Visible planets this month in order of disappearance are Mercury, Jupiter, Saturn and Mars. If you're lucky to have a flat horizon in the northeast and like planet Venus, you will be seeing it in the morning sky. This month, Mercury will reach its highest point in the evening sky on the 2nd of October and Mars will be at opposition closest to Earth on the 14th of October. Thus, we will be able to easily see features from Mars in a telescope. At the beginning of the month, the Sun is in the zodiacal constellation of Virgo, setting around 7.30pm and rising around 7am. It will stay here until the end of the month. Mercury is in Virgo, about 9 light minutes away. Venus is in Leo, visually very close to the Sun and is about 8 light minutes away from us. Mars is in the zodiacal constellation of Pisces and is about four light minutes away from us, which is why we can see so many details on its surface with a telescope. Jupiter is in Sagittarius and is about 40 light minutes away from Earth. Saturn is also in Sagittarius and is about 80 light minutes away from us. Planet Uranus is in Aries. It has a visual magnitude of plus 5.7 and under a very dark sky and if you have amazingly good eyes you might be able to see it with the naked eye it will be visible after mars appears in the night sky neptune is in aquarius so we can see it in the evening sky light from neptune takes approximately four hours to reach us here on earth at a visual magnitude of plus 7.8 you will need binoculars or telescopes to see it Pluto is in Sagittarius and very close to Jupiter. We cannot see Pluto with the naked eye as it has a magnitude of plus 14.4 and is about 
four hours and 30 light minutes away from us. So that's how much light from Pluto makes to reach our eyes here. Of course, none of the planets make visible light on their own. What we see are the features of each planet illuminated by the light from the sun that gets reflected by our solar system companions. After dark adaptation and under the very best observing conditions, the average limiting magnitude of the human eye is about magnitude 6.5. That is, if you have a really, really dark sky. In October, Milky Way Center is now on the western horizon after sunset. Scorpius and Sagittarius are the two constellations whose stars are between us and the galactic center. We're very lucky here in New Zealand to see the center of the Milky Way high in the sky, which means we are looking at it through less layers of atmosphere than in the northern hemisphere. In the northern hemisphere, from mid-latitudes, the center of the Milky Way climbs only above 30 degrees above the horizon. October is a good month to still see many deep sky objects. The majority of them are around the galactic bulge. In Scorpius, our favorites are Ptolemy's cluster or M7 or Messier 7, a beautiful open cluster of stars, the butterfly cluster or M6, which resembles to a butterfly and the globular clusters Messier 4 and Messier 80, the Bug Nebula NGC 6302 and the Cat's Paw Nebula NGC 6334 are excellent astrophotography targets this month. Neighboring Scorpius is Sagittarius. This is the constellation where we map the center of our galaxy, the Milky Way. Sagittarius's famous asterism, or grouping of stars, is the teapot, which here in New Zealand is upside down. Sagittarius cannot be seen from Scotland or Scandinavia, so we're very lucky here to be able to observe it overhead. The Milky Way is at its densest in Sagittarius, inside the constellation, which is a patch of the sky, of course. We can admire two beautiful star clouds easily seen in binoculars. The large Sagittarius star cloud and the small Sagittarius star cloud, Messier 24. Some stunning deep sky objects in Sagittarius are Lagoon Nebula, M8, Omega Nebula or Swan Nebula and the Trifid Nebula, another famous one, also known as M20. The Trifid Nebula is about 2 degrees from Lagoon Nebula. If anything else fails, just pick up a pair of binoculars and browse the night sky above your head. You will see amazing star fields. On the circumpolar region, the small Magellanic Cloud is in a good position to observe. Close to it, 47 Tucane is one of the most beautiful and large globular clusters that adorn the night sky. 47 Tucane is the second brightest globular cluster in the sky and one of the most massive clusters in the galaxy. Its angular diameter is roughly the size of the full moon. That's the width of your pinky at arm's length. It can be seen with the naked eye from Earth, although it's far, far away, about 13,000 light years from Earth. The three famous crosses of the Southern Sky, the Southern Cross, the Diamond Cross and the False Cross are very low on the horizon. And for the next three months, we will be looking at them through an extra layer of atmosphere. Some notable deep sky objects this month are Helix Nebula in Aquarius, Dumbbell Nebula in Vulpecula and the Grus Quartet in Grus. Famous for his nickname, the Eye of Sauron, especially here in New Zealand, Helix Nebula is a very large planetary nebula. Dumbbell Nebula M27 in Vulpecula is 
very bright and the first planetary nebula to be discovered. In Grus, a gathering of four interacting galaxies are known as the Grus Quartet. They're fascinating to see in a large telescope and they look like four tiny little smidges. You have to train your eye very well to be able to see them, but you can. Bright objects in the night sky, Beautiful bright stars and planets are visible in the night sky this time of the year. Right at the top of the sky, Antares, the red giant and main star from Scorpius, shimmers in an incredibly beautiful red color as seen through a telescope. On the southern horizon lays Canopus, glistening all colors, including red and green, as we see it through the atmosphere. On the opposite side, on the northern horizon, is Altair, the main star in Aquila. Just after sunset, at the beginning of the month, you can catch a good view of planet Mercury, which now reaches its highest point in the sky and sets about two hours after the sun. Jupiter and Saturn are evening objects, they are visible at zenith, Mars is visible after 9pm, and Venus just slightly visible in the morning, rising one hour before the sun. From New Zealand, I wish you clear skies so that you can always see the stars. And until next time, kakite ano. Thanks for that, Haritina and Sam. Unfortunately, we don't have any feedback for this month. But if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. Via Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And please don't send us any post at the moment as we still cannot get into the building. We'd, we really appreciate it if you're thinking of sending us post, but unfortunately, we're not allowed. Yeah, we'll love to get it later. I would, if I was allowed, I'd give you my address, but that's uh, against our policy. <laughs> Thanks to Sophia Wallstrom and Taisa Danilovich for the interview. The editors were Tian Bezeidenhout, Lizzie Lee, Hongming Tang and Tom Scrag. The producer was Michael Wright. Until next time... Shut up! <laughs>